Amen, friends. Please join me again in a brief word of prayer before we open up God's word together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've said in your word that all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Father, we pray that that enduring and eternal word that lives forever would produce in us spiritual life by which we might dwell in your presence forever. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, I wanna invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 26 as we continue our study through the book of Genesis. If you're using the Bible that we've provided, you'll find the passage on pages 20 and 21. And as always, I wanna encourage you to open to the passage so that you can follow along when I read it in just a few moments. But I also want to encourage you to keep your Bible open in front of you because we'll be looking at the passage often in our time together today. Now, I'm, we've been in Genesis for some time, and typically at the beginning of every one of my sermons, I repeat the same thing. I repeat what the point of Genesis is pretty much every week so that maybe, Lord willing, by the time we work through this entire series, you might have picked up on what it is, what that main point of Genesis is. I'm just going to throw it out there. I know this is a bit risky here because it, it may reflect poorly on my own teaching, but I want to I open up a question to the kids or teens. Can any of you remind me of what the main point of Genesis is? Anyone think of it? Raise your hand if you have an answer. Abram. to record the history of the descendants of Adam. Now, Abram, that is so close that I'm going to give that to you. Can we give Abram a round of applause there? Well done, Abram. The main point of the book of Genesis is to trace the line of individuals to follow the descendants of Adam, to trace the line of individuals through whom the promised seed would come. I want you to think back to Genesis chapter 3, when God cursed the serpent for tempting mankind to sin, God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So a child will come from the woman who will bruise or crush the serpent's Head. And from that point forward, Moses sets about tracing the line of people through whom that child would eventually come. We learn that he would come from Seth, and then from Noah, and then from Shem, and then from Abraham. And then from Abraham, he would come from Abraham's beloved son, Isaac. Genesis 26 teaches us again what we've already seen many times, that God's promised salvation will come through Isaac. But there's something else that we've seen taught throughout Genesis that really comes to the foreground in chapter 26. And it's the reality that in a fallen world, 
God's promises to his people are constantly under threat. They're threatened by the trials of living in a fallen world. They are threatened by our own struggles with sin. How, will God, how, how can God possibly accomplish his promises through such a sinful people who continue to stumble and fall? They're threatened by opposition from others. With so many threats to God's promises, we might wonder whether God's promises to us can or will ever come true. If that's something you've ever wondered, Genesis 26 should be a great encouragement to you this morning. So I want to invite you to follow along in your Bible as I read Genesis 26 for us now. This is God's word. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. And when the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he, feared, for he feared to say, my wife, thinking, lest the men in the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek, because they contended with him. 
Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved on from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug and said to him, we have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore the name of that city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was 40 years old, He took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basimath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. If you're taking notes this morning, uh, the main lesson that Genesis 26 decisively teaches us is that nothing can stop God from keeping his promises to his people. If you think to yourself, John, wait, wasn't that your point last week and the week before that and the week before that? The answer is yes. That is basically the main point of every sermon of Genesis since Genesis 12 until now. Nothing can stop God from keeping his promises to his people. But I want to I focus us specifically on the reality of certain things that we think will get in the way of God keeping his promises to us. And we see that not, uh, there will not be trials from without That will stop us from inheriting God's promises, nor will there be struggles with sin within that will keep us from inheriting God's promises to us. Nothing will stop God from keeping his promises to his people. And in the rest of this chapter, in the rest of our time, we're going to approach this chapter in three stages. So the first thing I'm going to do is walk through the entire chapter and explain it as I go. And then we're going to consider how this chapter is fulfilled in Jesus and in the gospel. And then we'll finally consider what this chapter has to teach us today. Uh, So let's go ahead and look at the text together. Uh, In Genesis 25, briefly, as we look back at the last chapter, the focus was on the birth of Jacob and Esau to Isaac and Rebekah. But rather than continuing the story of Jacob and Esau, Moses returns to focus on Isaac and events that occurred during his life. And we really can't miss how strikingly similar these events in Isaac's life are to events that occurred in Abraham's life. 
right? Moses wants us to see beyond a shadow of a doubt that like Abraham, Isaac has inherited God's promised salvation and that like with Abraham, nothing will stand in the way of God fulfilling his promises to Isaac. We see this from the beginning of the chapter, literally all the way to the very end. So go ahead and look with me. We're going to look quickly at it. In verses 1 to 5, we learn that there is a famine in the land. Natural disaster has struck the land of Canaan. What will become of God's promises to give his people the land if his people are forced by famine out of the land? We're not told the answer to that right away, but we are told that God appeared to Isaac in verse 2 and that God made promises to Isaac in verses 3 and 4. He promises to bless Isaac and to be with Isaac. He promises to give Isaac's offspring the land of Canaan. He promises to multiply Isaac's offspring more than the stars of heaven. And he promises that in Isaac's offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. These are essentially identical to the promises God made to Abraham at the beginning of chapter 12. But it's not just the promises that are the same. After God made those promises to Abraham in chapter 12, we learn that a famine has struck the land, forcing Abraham to take refuge in a particular city where it just so happens he sins against God by lying to the people of that city about his wife because he's afraid they'll kill him. He's then confronted by the king of the city. He's then told to leave the city, but through it all, he experiences abundant protection and blessing from God. Now look at verses 6 to 16. What do you think happens in Isaac's life? The exact same thing. Isaac settles in a city, Gerar, where the men of the city ask about his wife, Rebekah, and lo and behold, what does Isaac do? He lies about Rebekah and says she's his sister because he's afraid that the men of the city will kill him. Dude is a chip off of the old block, right? Like father, like son. And then he's confronted by the king of Gerar for his lie, a lie that endangered the people of Gerar. And yet, if you look at verses 12 to 16, following his very blatant lie, he is abundantly blessed by God. He became very wealthy and possessed flocks and herds and many servants, just like Abraham, and then was told by the king to leave the city just like Abraham was. But the similarities don't stop there, right? Later in Abraham's life, he would eventually come to live in the land of Gerar, where Isaac now is. He would attempt to dig wells to provide water for his herds, but when he dug the wells, the people of Gerar would seize them from him until he finally came into possession of a well of his very own, a well called Beersheba. Now look at verses 17 to 22. After leaving the city of Gerar, Isaac settles in the valley of Gerar and begins digging wells to provide water for his family and his flocks. And notice what happens. After Isaac's servants dug a well, verse 20, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdmen, herdsmen saying, the water is ours. They, they seized the well from him. So he moved on and dug another well. And after he dug it, we learn in verse 21 that they 
quarreled over that one also. The name Sitna means confrontation, quarrel, or conflict, until finally Isaac was able to secure a well of his own. Look at verse 22. He dug a well, and there was no quarreling. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. So God blessed him after his very blatant sin. God has now blessed him after his opposition from others. But the similarities with Abraham don't stop there either. Because of how abundantly God had blessed Abraham, we'll remember in Genesis 21 that Abimelech, the king of Gerar, went with his entourage to Abraham in order to make a peace treaty with him. They were like, yo, we see how blessed of the Lord that you are and how powerful you are, and we want peace with you because if you come against us, we have no hope, right? And after making, the, after making a treaty with Abimelech, Abraham named the well of water near where the treaty was made Beersheba because Beersheba means oath, treaty. And that is exactly what happens in verses 26 to 30 with Isaac. Abimelech comes with his entourage to Isaac, Isaac asks why they've come, and look at what they say in verse 28. We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So they ate and drank and exchanged oaths, and the next day, uh, after exchanging oaths, Isaac learns about a well that his servants dug, and he calls the name of the well, Sheba, and therefore the name of that city is Beersheba to this day. You're like, what, wait, how, how is it possible that they could have so many similar occurrences? What is going on here? Well, I think at every step along the way, Moses is trying to draw the closest possible parallel between Abraham's life and Isaac's life. Not only to show that Isaac is the one who has inherited God's promises, but to show that the same threats to the fulfillment of God's promises that Abraham faced, Isaac also faced. And more than that, to show that none of those threats could prevent God from fulfilling his promises to Isaac. Though Isaac experienced a famine, God still blessed Isaac with a massive harvest. Though Isaac struggled with sin, God still poured out on him the blessings he promised him. Though Isaac experienced opposition from the herdsmen of Gerar, Abimelech and his entourage had to acknowledge, we see plainly that the Lord is with you. God's promises to his people will not be thwarted by anything. Not trials from without, like famine, natural disaster, disease, or even death. Not struggles with sin within. Not even persistent struggles with sin within. Nor by opposition from others. God always keeps his promises to his people. But I want you to notice why. Why God kept his promises to Isaac? Because I think if you understand why God kept his promises to Isaac, you will see how powerfully Genesis 26 and these seemingly random events 
in the life of a herdsman from 3,000 years ago apply to you today and apply in very real, intangible ways? Look again with me at the beginning of the chapter at God's promise to Isaac, starting in verse 3. I'm going to read these again. God says to Isaac, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your offspring, I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Check this. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. The certainty of God's promises to Isaac was not based on Isaac's obedience, was not based on Isaac's faithfulness, was not based on Isaac's righteousness, but on the obedience, faithfulness, and righteousness of Abraham, who becomes the head of the Abrahamic covenant. And this isn't the only time we see this. Throughout the Old Testament, God tells the people of Israel over and over and over again that he will keep his promises to them for the sake of my servant Abraham. Why are you keeping these promises to us? Because of Abraham and because of what I promised to Abraham, because he was found faithful, because he was found obedient, because he was found righteous, I will keep all of my promises to you. We just need to take a step back and realize, as we've said in past weeks, it is not that Abraham was perfectly obedient or righteous. Far from it. But he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And in believing God, he became the head of the Abrahamic covenant. And his obedience of faith became the source of blessing for all of his offspring. It was because of his obedience of faith that his offspring were guaranteed the promises God made to him. And in that, we see how Abraham and the covenant God made with Abraham point forward to and are completely eclipsed by Jesus and the new covenant that God established in him. Just think about this. Jesus came as the actual, literal fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. He is the true offspring of Abraham, the true offspring of Adam, the son of the woman who came to crush the serpent's head and bring the blessing of salvation to all the families of the earth. And how did he do that? He did that by living a perfect life. Though he experienced famines, though he experienced temptation to sin, though he experienced opposition from others, he never once sinned. He never faltered once. You just think about your life. I don't know about y'all. I tend to be a bit more reflective. I'm constantly thinking about why I do the things that I do. And it's like, I can't go five minutes without faltering. Like, what what is wrong with me? He, He never faltered once. He never sinned. And then he died on the cross 
bearing the punishment that we deserve so that God could justly forgive us of our sins. The payment has been paid. Forgiveness is now yours. And then Jesus rose from the dead, showing that God accepted his sacrifice and guaranteeing to all who turned to him that God would indeed forgive them of their sins. And in his death and resurrection, Jesus established the new covenant, a new covenant founded on better promises than the old covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, not the promises of physical descendants and the land of Canaan to live in, but the promise of forgiveness from God, reconciliation with God, justification, sanctification, and future glorification, the promise of God's power and presence now through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the promise of God's power and presence forever in the new heavens and the new earth. We're not just gonna get a little plot of land in the Middle East. We're getting the whole globe, saints. You're getting a new heavens and a new earth like Jonathan was talking about in that children's book. This ain't about sitting on clouds and like playing like harps and stuff. Like I would hate that, like a harp. That's crazy. I don't wanna play that. Now we're talking about a new globe where sin and sorrow and struggles have been banished forever. No more death, no more sorrow, no more pain, living in the presence of God and the Lamb forever. That's the promise of the new covenant. And what is it guaranteed by? Not your righteousness or mine, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is for his sake because of what he done because of his obedience that all of these promises are ours. They are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. All of the promises of the new covenant are guaranteed to you and I because of the obedience of Jesus, the son of God. Because of what Jesus has done, God's promises to you will not be thwarted by anything. Not trials from without, nor sin from within. Nothing will stop God from keeping his promises to you. Well, John, where do you see that it won't be tr- trials won't stand in the way of God's promises to us? Did you notice the various trials that Isaac faced in Genesis 26? Look again at verse one. Now there was a famine in the land. It's hard for us to appreciate Not only how great of a threat this was to God's promises to Isaac, but how great of a trial this would have been for him to walk through, right? We we have grocery stores and convenience stores. You got massive warehouses full of food like Costco or Sam's Club. We have refrigerators and freezers and pantries. We have perishable goods that are canned and that can be stored until the other side of the apocalypse, right? right? Not being able to find food is not something that many of us have experienced. Famine is not something we're familiar with. But famine was one of the great threats to life in this culture. It it, it literally was a chief outworking, a chief symbol of the curse in Genesis 3. When God promised Adam that the ground would produce thorns and thistles, this is a promise of future famine. You will labor and labor and labor, and lo and behold, the soil will be like iron to you, right? 
So when we hear that famine has struck the land, we should understand that God's promises are under threat. God promised to give Isaac this land. But Isaac can't live in this land unless it produces food for him and his family. But famine isn't the only trial that Isaac experiences. He also faces opposition from others. As he tried to make a home in the land that God promised him, one of the things he would have needed was water for his family and flocks. But every time they dug a well for water, the herdsmen of Gerar fought with him and forced him to keep moving. But if you just widen the scope just a little bit on Isaac's life, you'll remember that last week we learned that he and Rebekah struggled with infertility for 20 years. And then when they had children, those children fought terribly with one another. It's just one trial after another. But we have to see that no trial, no matter how great, can thwart God's promises to his people. Look at verse 12. Just notice the wording. And Isaac sowed in that land. There's a famine in the land. What are you doing sowing, buddy? The seeds aren't going and there's nothing's growing from that land. And Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. In the same year a hundredfold. In the midst of a famine, Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. Famine might be too big of a trial for us, but famine is not too big of a trial for God. The same goes for his experience of opposition from others. After experiencing opposition from the people of Gerar on multiple occasions, he's finally able to dig a well in peace. And what reason does he give for their success? Look at verse 22 again. For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Friends, no matter the trial you are experiencing, whether large or small, whether famine or disease or a broken marriage or problems with children or chronic illness and pain or issues at work or battles with depression and anxiety, no matter the trial you experience, Nothing can stop God from keeping his promises to you. Not only that, but what God does for Isaac in the midst of the famine shows us that, contrary to expectations, God can abundantly bless his people in the midst of their trials. There's a famine, and yet Isaac reaps a bumper crop. Friends, none of our trials will ever be so big that God can't bless us in the midst of it. And I don't say that lightly. In fact, God promises in his word to do just that. Not with bumper crops or flocks and herds, but with an abundance of spiritual fruit. Think about what Paul says in Romans 5 about how God uses our trials. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. 
And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If you've trusted in Jesus, God will never let you be put to shame by any of your trials. God will never let you be put to shame by any of your trials. Instead, he uses them to produce an abundance of spiritual fruit in your life. He uses them to produce endurance, character, and hope. He uses them to produce peacefulness, patience, and humility. He uses them to produce steadfastness, gentleness, and ultimately the glorious fruit of deeper faith. The deeper faith that comes through experiencing trials of various kinds and learning that God will ultimately bring you through every one of them. Or you just think about your life. Think about Isaac's life and Abraham's before it. You could legit describe both of their lives as trial after trial after trial. That, this, is how, this is the major note, note that I'm striking in their lives. Trial after trial after trial punctuated by God's faithfulness to them. You ever feel like that's what your life is? Younger kids, you might not feel like that, but as you get older, your parents might be able to share how that is similar to their experience. It just seems like trial comes, trial ends, God has been faithful, and it's like ready for a season where I can kind of lay low and, 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 and refresh and re-energize, and God's like, nope, another trial, another trial, another trial, but I am going to be faithful to you throughout all of it in order to prove to you that nothing can keep me from keeping my promises to you. And ultimately, when we face the ultimate trial of death, does that mean that God has put us to shame? No, because the same spirit that dwells in us will be the spirit by which God raises us from the dead and brings us into the new heavens and new earth forever. Friends, there is no trial that you will face, large or small, that can keep God from keeping his promises to you. These trials teach us that the same God who told Isaac in verse 24 Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you. It's the same God who has promised to be with us until the end of the age. It is the same God who stills the storm, fills the empty oil jar, and raises his people from the dead. Friends, there is no trial that we will experience that is too big for God to overcome. Not only that, but we learn the great news that neither will our struggle with sin within keep us from experiencing God's promises to us. That's the other thing we learn from this chapter. Our struggles with sin won't stop God from keeping his promises to us. And we see that in Isaac and, God, in, in Isaac and God's response to Isaac. In verse seven, when Isaac is asked about his wife, Rebecca, he tells the men in that place that she's his sister because he's afraid they'll kill him if they find out she's his wife. So he sins by fearing them more than God and he sins by lying to them rather than telling them the truth. Not only that, but we have to remember that God's promised seed, the Lord Jesus, the one on whom God's entire plan of redemption rests, would come from Isaac and Rebekah, not some other man and Rebekah, right? But when Isaac says she's his sister, he put her in a position where another man could take her as his wife and produce children with her. Isaac has sinned by jeopardizing the entirety of God's plan of redemption. Just take a step back real quick. Have you ever jeopardized the entirety of God's plan of redemption? 
No? Well, then you can rest assured that God's promises to you are still true in light of your struggles with sin, right? God still blesses Isaac. Even after he sinned and jeopardized his plan of redemption, he blesses him with abundant wealth in verse 13, with abundant flocks and herds in verse 14, with a well of water of his own in verse 22. God blessed him so much that Abimelech and his entourage recognize in verse 28 and 29, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you You are now the blessed of the Lord. Have you ever had anyone say that to you? You are now the blessed of the Lord. Like, no, my life has never been going so well that other people looked at me and was like, God's blessing is definitely on you. But that's what they're doing with Isaac in the wake of his sin. God promised to bless Isaac, and so he was going to bless him. Isaac's struggle with sin wasn't going to stop God from keeping his promises to Isaac. I just want to be real, real clear here. In no way do I offer this as a rationale for you to go on sinning. Like, if God's going to bless me no matter what, then I can, I can just keep doing the things that he says I shouldn't do. Right? If we willingly go on sinning, if we make a practice of sin, if we engage in it without repentance and pursue it with all of our heart's desire and just live and think, God, it doesn't matter to God what I do. If we do that, 1 John says, then we need to question whether we actually have been born again, right? We don't, this, isn't a, this isn't a rationale to just keep on sinning and doing whatever you like. Instead, I offer this as an encouragement to the Christian who is wearied by their sin, who is burdened by your constant battles with sin. The same thing, I did the same thing 30 minutes ago. What is wrong with me? The Christian who's wondering whether God loves you and will keep you. Friends, think about what Paul says at the end of Romans 8. Nothing can separate you from God's love for you in Jesus Christ. When God says nothing can separate you, that nothing, that gigantic bucket includes your continued struggle with sin. But you might think, John, my my sin is too big for God to keep forgiving. Is it bigger than Isaac's? Right? Is Is it, he literally jeopardized the salvation of the world with his sin. Of course it's not bigger than Isaac's. But you might think, but John, my, my struggle is so constant. There's no way God will love me or keep me. Friend, if that's you, look at Isaac. He literally sins right after God appeared to him. God appears to him in Gerar, tells him all these glorious promises, and the next thing Isaac does is sins. What is going on here? What is wrong with this guy? The Lord just appeared to him, and you're sinning already, buddy? And then you look in the mirror, and you're like, yep, that's me, right? The battle is constant. No matter how big your sin is, no matter how persistent your struggle with sin is, if you have repented and put your faith in Jesus Christ, God will keep every single one of his promises to you. If that faith is like the size of a grain of sand, all of God's promises to you in Christ are yes and amen because it's not the size of your faith, but the size of the God in whom your faith is. If your faith is like a flame that is just burning down to the very end, there is barely anything left on it. If just a a subtle wind comes by, it is going to blow out. 
all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ because Jesus is the one who is the eternal wick who will keep your flame burning, that your faith might continue in him. No persistent struggle with sin will keep God from keeping his promises to you. And one of the promises he will keep to you and I as we struggle with sin is to continue interceding on our behalf. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland says that Jesus' intercession on our behalf is the constant hitting refresh on our justification in the court of heaven. You ever refreshed a web page? Now, here's, here's where the illustration breaks down, right? Because sometimes you hit refresh, and it's like, come on, come on, come on. What, why, why isn't it loading? That's never a problem in the court of heaven. But he is always interceding. You are always perfectly justified. He is always refreshing our justification. Not that it needs to be refreshed, but you get the image. It's always going on. God has promised that the high priest Jesus will intercede for his people. That is a glorious image. We often think that our persistent struggles with sin, you know, result in or will result in God not liking us or rolling his eyes at us or getting tired of us, like not, not you again, right? Weren't you just here earlier today? But Ortland likens God's response to us in our sin to a compassionate doctor that has traveled deep into the jungle to provide medical care to a primitive tribe afflicted with a contagious disease. He's had his medical equipment flown in he has correctly diagnosed the problem. The, antibi the antibiotics are prepared and available. He's independently wealthy and has no need of any financial compensation, but as he seeks to provide care, the afflicted refuse. They want to take care of themselves. They want to heal on their own terms. Finally, a few brave young men step forward to receive the care being freely provided. What does the doctor feel when they do this? joy. His joy increases to the degree that the sick come to him for help and healing. It's the whole reason he came. How much more if the diseased are not strangers, but his own family? So with us and so with Christ. And God does not get flustered and frustrated when we come to him for fresh forgiveness, for renewed pardon with distress and need and emptiness. That is the whole reason Jesus came. It is what he came to heal. Jesus went down into the horror of death and plunged out through the other side in order to provide a limitless supply of mercy and grace to his people. And God has promised to provide that limitless supply of mercy and grace to his people. And nothing can stop God from keeping his promises to us. And to the kids and the teens here today, I think as you struggle with sin in your life and you get older, I think one of the lies that Satan will tempt you to believe is that God doesn't love you. Don't go to him, he's harsh, he's mean, he's not gonna accept you, you're not holy. He's holy, you're not holy. This is the type of lies that Satan's gonna tempt you to believe, but this is where you need to remember God's word and God's promises. God loves sinners. Proof of that is all of us. God 
loves sinners. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. He loves us so much that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His promises to you are not threatened or jeopardized by your sin. And one of those promises is his undying love for you. What the Bible calls his steadfast love. What the children's storybook Bible calls his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That is one of the promises of the new covenant in Christ that is yours by faith. Jesus loves you. And this is a lesson we all need to learn. Friends, there are no trials from without. No struggles with sin from within that can keep God from keeping his promises to us. In Christ, all of God's promises to his people are yes and amen. So let's keep running the race. Let's keep fighting the good fight of faith until God's promise of giving us our own Rehoboth comes true. When God comes to bring us the new heavens and the new earth where trials from without and sin from within will be no more. Let's pray. Father, we believe, help our unbelief. Help us to continue laying hold of you by faith. And as we hold fast to you, we pray that you would hold fast to us and help us to rest in the fact that Jesus does hold fast to us and has laid down his life for us and will come back to gather his people to be with him where he is. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.